Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Shai Dromi, a lecturer of sociology at Harvard University and author of the recently published Above the Fray, the Red Cross and the Making of the Humanitarian NGO Sector. In our conversation, Shai introduces us to the work of Luke Boltansky and discusses how he found inspiration in Boltansky's theorizing of communication and morality. Shai also helps us better understand the value of Boltansky's ideas through introducing his co-authored research on how advertisers make sense of the moral worth of their jobs and his in-progress co-authored book on how morality emerged as a point of contention or has been obscured in our key disciplinary debates. Hi, Shai. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kyle. So we are here today to talk about Luke Boltansky. Could you give us a short introduction to who he is or even better, what he's known for? Sure. So Luke Boltansky is one of the more interesting sociologists of current times, in my opinion, certainly one of the more influential French sociologists of the last decades. I would say that he's best known for what he calls uh, the pragmatic sociology of critique, which is an approach he developed together with uh, Laurent Thévenot at École des Autitudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He has a long background in that institution, primarily as advisee of uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who um, he worked with him through, throughout the 70s, um, did research on classes, education, uh, kind of very Bourdieusian type of uh, research. But in the 80s, and then even more so in the 90s, he took a very different direction um, that rather than looking at how classes or um, field positions predetermine our experience and our life choices, he actually switched over and started looking at how individuals develop different notions of social justice. And then how do those notions of justice play out in debates about the social good in society? And I think this became the trademark of his approach to sociology from the late 80s to today. Do you get a sense that he's someone who's widely read in the larger discipline, or is it more that within particular subfields, maybe people engage with Boltansky? How popular is he, I guess, would be the question. It's a good question. I mean, if we're looking at American sociology, there is a caveat that some of his books were translated not in the right, not in the order in which they were written. So, For example, uh, on justification, one of his most well-read book in the United States was translated in 2006, but it actually came out in the early 90s in French and and had books that preceded it that provided a lot of the theoretical background that were translated much later to English. So in a sense, what was imported into English was first his work on um, justification, that was also co-authored with Laurent Thévenot, which I think was at least somewhat influential in the U.S. Um, Paul Lecterman and Nina Elyasov relied on uh, Boltansky's approach in their work on uh, collective mobilization. Uh, Michel Lamont did research on um, national repertoires of evaluation together with Laurent Thévenot, work comparing the U.S. to France that was widely read here in the U.S. too. I will say that the more, uh, both the earlier work and then uh, some of his more recent work is really just coming out now in American sociology, and I I don't know that it's been read very widely. When did you first encounter Boltansky, and do you recall what that experience was like? Sure. So I encountered Boltansky in um, college. 
This was in a sociology class on um, cultural sociology. I read a book called Distant Suffering that was very much about the ways uh, individuals experience perceiving other groups who are in suffering, who are in grief, who are in misery, uh, but at the same time, it's at a distance, so you can't really do much about it, at least not directly. And the book was exploring the ways in which we as just individuals do develop ethical responses to the spectacle of suffering. Um, ethical responses that go beyond just feeling sorry for someone else. Uh, now, this was a time where there was a great deal of social upheaval in Israel, um, political disagreements, social disagreements. There was also a war with, uh, with Lebanon and a great deal of suffering being communicated almost every day on, on television uh, from groups that are clearly far far away, far from reach. And I remember this book really did touch me in a way that it formulated my ability to criticize the situation and to uh, point out to to injustice as a moral act. It's something that is uh, inherently tied to human, you know, almost innate critical capacity. And I think that was that was really the first time that I really delved into uh, Boltanski's rich work. And that, that also led me later on to his own work on justification that was much more developed in terms of um, thinking about public debates and how different people having different ideas of what justice is really communicate and really come to to some sort of agreement about what's the the right thing to do together. So I want to talk more about what drew you back to his writings and uh, especially moving into his ideas on justification. But I'm curious, what did you think of the writing when you first encountered it? Because you were, you were much uh, younger at that time. It sounds like it was assigned in a course, but then you went on to read more of it. What did you think of his style itself? I will say I was. It wasn't even assigned in the course. It was very, very intimidating book. It took me a while to read it, and I think I only understood it the second time around. That makes me feel better. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is not an easy work. I think you know the first time you read it, you it's it's almost like you feel like. You just read something very profound, but you're not 100% sure what it was. Um, so I do think that that is one of his more challenging books. I know that there is disagreement about how to read uh, some aspects of it. It is certainly, it's it, it's not something I would, I would assign in a um, sociology course today, <laughs> um, at least not in an undergrad class. I do think that in grad class, we definitely confront harder texts, you know, in grad school. So that could be a place where this could be a very, very evocative text to discuss and perhaps see how everyone is, you know, the different respondents says everyone has to it. So considering how challenging his writing style or the nature of his argument can potentially be, what drew you back to his work? Because you chose mm. to continue on and say, okay, I read this one, but I want to know more about his ideas. How, how did that happen? So what I really liked about it is that he, he develops a notion of a topic, um, topic like drawing from uh, Aristotelian discourse, uh, basically meaning that there are certain statements that we make every day that are at the same time factual and uh, normative. 
Right. So let's say I will tell you now that patients in Sierra Leone, for example, are more likely to die of uh, COVID-19 right, than people in the United States. And I could just say to you as a statement of fact, right? But most likely I won't be just expressing this as a simple fact to you. I will also be implying or without saying it directly that this is wrong, right? That this implies inequality, that this speaks to the global inequality of health services uh, and that some countries are just not able to provide the same level of service to their citizens as others, right? So in one statement, I actually said two things to you, both a fact statement and a value statement, which in a sense contradicts a lot of um, you know, the, the classic sociological thinking about uh, the fact-value distinction, right? There is, in a sense, uh, for Boltanski, the, the fact-value distinction itself is questionable, right? Because we can point to many places where I will say both a fact and a value to you without one compromising the other. That really drew me to his work, this new way of thinking or different way of thinking about communication and about morality. That really took me to his work on justification as well, what this gets developed even further. Okay. And so can you talk a little bit more about what you discovered in that work on justification that really influenced you as you went into your own research? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his work on justification was primarily written with Laurent Teveno. I read the book on justification. There are various articles that are uh, associated with it. And the unjustification really looks at how individuals address issues that have several parties with very, very different ideas of what is the right, what is the moral thing to do, what is the, the, the right way to evaluate morality, to measure what's um, socially worthwhile, and how we should uh, act upon it. And through, through a long process, Laurent Teveno and uh, Luc Boltanski identify several key ways in which Western societies tend to define what morality is. Um, it's referred to as worlds of justifications, um, polities of justification. It's been, it's been translated in, in several different ways. But given the existence of these multiple ways of defining morality, the question becomes how do individuals navigate at a terrain where you know, you can offer one justification for, let's say, building a road somewhere, but another justification to actually not building it and letting nature thrive in the same area. So thinking about your own research as a way to make sense of, of what a sociologist can do with these ideas. Mm -hmm. And I should also, as a side note, say that we are uh, also recording a podcast where we're going to work through an article where he kind of lays out this process of justification together. So if uh, listeners are interested, make sure to check out the companion podcast. But I'm wondering if we could turn to your own work and think about, so what is a, a sociologist, what do you do with this idea as you go out and study things? Yeah, so actually recently we had Andy Cohen and myself, an article in uh, Theory and Society where we looked at how uh, advertising professionals just understand the worth of the work they're doing because um, various polls show that advertising is considered to be morally questionable pursuit. There are advertising professionals who keep uh, kind of talking about how they're 
constantly confronted by people telling them, oh, you're just trying to sell all sorts of useless stuff. You're really taking advantage of people and so on. And the question for us was, so how do they themselves understand what's good about being an advertising uh, professional? Because we do know from social psychological literature that people do want to feel that they are uh, moral, that they are essentially a good person. And through this article, it was based uh, primarily on Andy's um, uh, ethnography at advertising agencies. We discovered uh, that there are several very different patterns in which advertising professionals understand the worth of their work and that they apply it to difficult cases. For example, like, should we advertise cigarettes, right? Are we possibly misleading our potential uh, consumers? And so on. And we found, for example, that some advertisers, especially the, the creatives, right, the ones who are more on the side of designing the advertisement, are very prone to provide examples like, well, we contribute fun to society. We contribute beauty to society. If you're walking around and seeing cool, interesting advertisement, we've made your day better, right? Whereas those advertisers that are more in charge of uh, maintaining relations with the, the clients, the actual advertisers will have justifications that say, well, we help enterprises, we help people achieve their goals by teaching them, by showing them how to push forward their products and so on. And th- there are other examples, but through these ways, we've shown how advertising uh, professionals really counteract stigma, right? And think differently, kind of turn stigma around and say, you know, I'm not this bad person that some people say I am, right? My work actually contributes to the common good. Now, not everyone agrees, of course, but at the same time, this is a process that we think happens not just among advertising agencies, but also any other workplace where there is disagreement about the moral nature of the work. So this is such a fascinating project. And I'm curious, were these conversations happening? Were these justifications being provided when Andy would specifically ask, you know, what do you think of the potential stigma that surrounds what you're doing? Or Mm. were this type of justification an ongoing process that occurred sometimes in more explicit and sometimes less explicit ways? That's a great question. Actually, no. So the question, you know, how do you respond to the claims that advertising is a bad profession, that question was not asked. So these are things that emerged organically through their responses to other questions, to their um, in, in conversations with one another and so on. And that was the part that was really surprising and interesting. Yeah, that seems to fit what Boltanski is talking about more than if you came in there and immediately said, hey, everyone hates you. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that they themselves would recalled in several situations statements like, uh, I don't know, someone was in the cab and the driver asked them what they do. They said they're uh, advertising professionals. Oh, yeah, yeah, you guys, you're the ones who push, Mm -hmm. uh, who make make me buy stuff I don't want, right? So that was the interesting part for us. And through the engagement with Boltanski, we really connected this to much broader ways of thinking about what is the good really in society and how how can we contribute to the common good. 
So this always interests me, uh, what our relationship to theory that inspires us actually is when we're doing our research. So did you find that he provides this understanding of the process of justification and he provides these different worlds or uh, different models that people can engage with? And as you did your research, you actually saw this process playing out. Or were you calling into question some of the ways that he formulated this process? Mm, yeah. So I will say that the, you know, Boltanski's influence on my own work has at times been more subtle and at times been more um, um, so um, my first book Above the Fray really engaged with the history of humanitarian aid from a, a much more Buddhistian point of view although I kept some of Boltanski's key questions for example about justice and how actors conceive of it as the core of the work, and we can talk about that as well if you'd like. But I think my new project, which is co-authored with uh, Sam Stabler from CUNY Hunter College, really exemplifies how great this theory can be. So basically what we're doing is looking at how sociologists resolve moral dilemmas that they face in their, their actual empirical work. And to do that, we're looking at the, the a history of various conflicts between sociologists that occurred throughout the history of our discipline. For example, about um, the culture of poverty, for example, about race and genetics, for example, about secularization and whether it is happening or not. And in all these cases, we're looking at sociological research that was published around these dilemmas and asking what are the markers of good research that they're employing? How are they saying, so what should be sociology like? How should sociologists change their practices? And so on. And through that, we're identifying several different moral claims that sociologists tend to make about research. For example, sometimes you will have sociologists saying, well, I want to do the research that's the most uh, civic-minded. Uh, I think sociological research should be about increasing equality in our society. Conversely, other sociologists may say, well, I think sociology should really be used to amplify voices of marginalized groups. I think that is uh, the most important goal for us. And research that does not do that is not worthwhile. Um, and a third, you know, colleague in this uh, kind of fictional department might come and say, well, sociology needs to be very accurate. It needs to use the most up-to-date methodologies. And research that doesn't use those methods is actually not fulfilling the moral goals of our discipline. And through the book, what we're trying to show is that actually the development of our discipline was tied just as much to morality as it was to, you know, the empirical findings and uh, theoretical um, growth. Uh, in fact, we're saying that some of our best moments, some of the moments of uh, um, growth of creativity in the discipline have actually been tied to moral dilemmas that sociologists were grappling to resolve. And I think that's one direction where Boltanski's theory can take us by showing that us that we as academics are also moral creatures like no less than everyone else. And, you know, that many of our dilemmas and the way we solve them are actually equivalent to other dilemmas that we solve in our daily lives. Is that through articles and books or are you looking at transcriptions of certain debates that took place at conferences or what's the source of understanding? 
So we're primarily looking at published research because we're thinking that that is, in a sense, what went through the entire process of peer reviewing and of uh, publishing can give us the most accurate view on how this actually shaped the products of sociological research, the final published product. At the same time, we are absolutely looking at newsletters, transcripts, minutes, and other archival documents. This next question might not make sense, so I'm giving, okay. I'm giving you a warning. I'm just kind of I'm thinking through it as you were giving your answer. It's interesting because it seems like, in a sense, your own engagement with Boltanski mirrored potentially his own development, where he went from being a, a student of Bordeaux, and then, as you, you mentioned, his later work, it's more associated with this tradition of the American pragmatist. So, and I'm always interested in where do we see that influence of this body of American philosophy from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it seems like that shift is what you're kind of following along, where in looking at justice, he's really trying to figure out, well, what do people actually do? How do people talk about it? Is, it, is that making sense at all? I'm just trying to think of... I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's more moving from what Paul Ricoeur used to call the, the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? This idea that Whatever it is that you, you you say is actually predetermined by something else. Uh, and that something else could be your class, could be your, um, I don't know, field position. It could be your geographic location, your ethnicity, and so on. Moving from that to a sense that, no, people actually have a fairly clear sense of what it is that they're saying and why they're saying it in a way, no less than the sociologist, him or herself, right? So, you know, if you and I can talk uh, and be critical of various social processes, so can anyone else in our society. They're not that different than us. And I think making that shift also explains the shift from relating to Bourdieusian field analysis, uh, and then also to the longer-term philosophical traditions that these people were reading and these people were thinking about, right? as they were thinking about the types of social enterprises that they wanted to create. Now, as as you're engaging with Boltanski's work and you're having this shift to the way you're understanding the field, are there other theorists that you see his ideas working particularly well with? Yeah, so I think the whole framework works well with cultural sociology in its various va- variant in American sociology, ranging from Alexander's strong program in cultural sociology through toolkit and repertoire theories, Michelle Amont, Anne Swedler, and so on. I think this, there are lots of places of overlap. It could also be useful to explore the differences between a theory that was thought up in France versus a theory or a set of theories that were um, created here in the United States. Just, you know, between them, there are many commonalities, but there may be some adjustments that need to be made. I also think that, it, that this could be a very natural companion or tool in social movements theory. In a lot of discussion about framing really talks about how movements kind of instrumentalize and um, mobilize various uh, cultural imageries or um, discourses to, to achieve their aims. But at the same time, what the Boltanski framework could offer is a new look at why social movements are invested in one type of framing rather than the other. What forms of justice do they think are relevant to what they're doing versus what forms of justice are irrelevant? 
I think those are the, the, the places where I think this would be a very good tool to, you know, either either use or to uh, creatively disagree with. So as a final question, I like to ask the guests to reflect on their theorists. So reflecting on, on Luke Boltanski's writing and thinking about your own research that you've done and your own time in the classroom as a, as a professor, if you had a student come up to you um, and say, you know, should I read this or why should I read this? You know, the writing's pretty dense. The ideas are pretty challenging. What would you tell them? What would be your, I guess you're the, you're the advertiser now. <laughs> what, what, would, <laughs> what, would your, what would your selling point be trying to convince them that this would make their life better? It's a great question. I think what we could tell the student is here's a theory that actually takes the subjects seriously or research subjects um, and deals with them with actual moral and critical capacities that are exactly the same like us, the sociologists. So in a sense, it allows us to form a symmetry between our knowledge and our subject's knowledge and actually learn from the way they are doing their own you know, social justice in their own daily lives. And that's unlike many of the theories that we um, learn and use today, that actually have us, the sociologists, know something about our subjects that they supposedly don't know or don't fully appreciate that causes them to experience the world in a certain way. I think that is a powerful tool. I think it's radically different than many of our practices, but I think it allows us to be surprised by some of the findings, to maybe have our subjects say something to us that confounds our, I guess, either common sense or sociological expectations of what they should be saying. And that's of great value uh, across various areas of research. That's, I think that's a great way to end it. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for talking through and introducing us to the work of Luke Botansky. Thank you, Kyle. It's a pleasure. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.